1: But first, the big story of the day, and Simi was touching on it this morning, of course uh, the strike that is holding our ports quiet. 7,400 BC port workers and longshoremen on strike. And uh, what that means, what that means to the industry, what that means to consumers, how it might impact supply chain issues. There's a lot to dive into. And we want to start with how this might affect regular folk what is going to happen here in terms of realistically how large our port is with regard to what comes and goes through our little corner of the world it is not insignificant in fact a quarter to one-third of all canadian trade comes and goes via the west coast ports grains and fertilizers foods and goods and and there's the looming question one we will bo- uh, broach a couple of times today. In fact, I'm going to get in this Keith Baldry as well. Should the federal government step in here? Just to set the table a bit, here's a taste of uh, Global BC's Grace Key reporting on the on the strike. Have a listen.
0: The International Longshore and Warehouse Union did not take any questions, but they were clearly frustrated with the process
1: of the negotiations.
0: Both sides headed back to the bargaining table Sunday morning after an overnight break following 33 consecutive hours of negotiations. Some 7,400 longshore workers walked off the job on Canada Day. The potential economic impacts can be significant if this is dragged out. The Port Authority saying $1 of every $3 of Canada's trade in goods outside of North America America moves through the port of Vancouver so any disruption to port operations has a significant impact
1: globally and on Canadians right so just to put that into some context here the cost of goods that flows through West Coast ports adds up to some 800 million dollars a day okay 800 million dollars a day so that easily five billion dollars each week let's put that little button on it five billion a week. So picket lines and strikes, volatility hitting an already challenged supply chain world and an affordability challenged consumer. Let's connect now with somebody who knows and studies what we're talking about here. Professor Peter Hall is on the line from Simon Fraser University's Urban Studies and Geography. Professor, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Nice to, nice to speak with you this morning, Jody.
1: This is really a complex um puzzle piece uh you know the effects that it might have uh, you know on a workforce and and certainly the collecting collective bargaining piece is one but the greater piece is how much comes and goes through our ports here in in british columbia can you set the table for us in layman's terms of of just how um big of a deal this is for lack of a better way of putting it
2: sure um so um uh, as you as you said um, a moment ago, every day um, 800 million dollars of goods and so, uh, goods flow through the th- flow through the port. Um, in the short run, those goods that are moving in and out of the port, um, they you know the supply chain can deal with a disruption that is that is that is short. And um, and I say that, and that's a little bit complicated because if it's uh, if it's fresh produce. The short term is really short. If it's a lump of coal, the short term can be quite long. It, you know, it doesn't doesn't really matter if a lump of coal is, is 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 lying idle for a month. So, every day a whole lot of goods move through the port, but only only uh, like one percent of that value um, is going to actually handle those goods. That's the um, the the dock workers, the truckers, the warehouse people. Um, that activity, the handling of the goods, that, that gets disrupted immediately when the, when the ports shut down. But the actual value of the goods itself, um, that, only, that only starts getting affected if the strike or the disruption goes on for a longer time. And, and as I say, it's a complicated picture because uh, a disruption for a perishable is, is much more significant than a disruption for a non-perishable.
1: Professor, can we predict what will get more expensive most quickly?
2: Um, hmm, that that's a tough one. Um, you know, one of the things that comes in through the port is is fuel. Um, uh, um, uh, you know, some refined uh, fuel products. So you know, maybe right. we'll see maybe we'll see some disruptions there. Um, uh, you know, but just to just to sort of paint how complicated this is. Um, if we can't send out container loads of uh, refrigerated fish then the local price of fish might actually go down because those exporters have got uh, you know one of the choices they might make is to is to sell the fish locally rather than export it so it's a it's a really it's a really uneven picture um, i I think that I think it's it's hard to see how this Causes a general increase in prices unless unless it goes on for a really long time, um, because mm-hmm. as I say, you know most things that come through the port, particularly most of the imported goods, they're things that um, that we can wait for. Um, you know, you you can wait for a new kitchen sink. Um, you can you can wait for a new piece of furniture. Um, there's no reason why the price of that should increase um, substantially if there's a, if there's a short disruption
1: right because it won't be damaged by sitting there it's the those items are equivalent to that that piece of coal that you're referencing so interesting exactly. while there are some some who are saying rather urgently that the federal government should you know legislate back to work because the port is essential it's essential for perishables
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and no, that- and then the fuel cost is is real but it's sure. it's, a, and, it's and- a fine line right
2: it, it really it really is a fine line and so really you know and it's a, it's a, you got to feel you got to feel for the federal government because it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a complicated picture you know on the export side um, there's a there's a provision that keeps the grain terminals open um, in the in the Canada labor code so there's there's no concern about those getting shut down um, you know but when we had the when we had the trucker strike a few years ago um, we did see some of the lumber mills um, have to go slow um because um because there wasn 't anywhere to store the uh, the cut lumber so that kind mm-hmm. of impact does does um you know it does happen to industries that are exporting goods as well but again it it takes a while for those to show up um, uh, these supply chains are not are not they 're not that fragile
1: that is good to know because that the the headlines feel as though um they are extremely fragile and we've we've seen you know large um freighters stuck in the Panama Canal and how it did have you know a backup that impacted the global supply chain but there are ways and safeguards in place uh, to ensure that that the most vital of of these pieces arrive at their destination yeah um, no that's, that's what i'm I'm gleaning from yeah, you
2: yeah no that's that's that, that that's absolutely right you know there's if there's there there are going to be some people who are really going to be inconvenienced and uh wouldn't wouldn't want to minimize that and you know that right. that's part of why that's part of why I'm sure they they agreed to keep the cruise terminals open um because yes. somebody shows up at YVR and they get told sorry you you, you you're not getting on your cruise they're going to you know the politicians are going to hear all about that um so yeah. You know, so there are those, and you know, and if someone's waiting for a vital container load of something, they they could be inconvenienced by this. But at, at an at an aggregate level, um, if something's perishable, they'll find somewhere else to sell it, or maybe if it's really valuable, they'll put it on an airplane or a truck. Um, and mm-hmm. if uh, and, and and so in the short term, there are all those kinds of adjustments that that people um, do make.
1: Professor Peter Hall, thank you very much for bringing your expertise to our program today. Appreciate your time.
2: You're welcome, Jody. Take care.
1: Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Time to speak about the management of freight and what happens when there is a strike the way we are seeing the port workers and longshoremen of B.C. Uh, What happens to the freight that doesn't move, that arrives on the coast, but doesn't get put onto ships and, and sent off to parts unknown? John Corey is the president of Freight Management Association of Canada and joins us now. John, how are you? Thanks for doing this. I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. How busy so, is your wh- life right now with what's going on here? Well, uh, let's say it was a busy
3: uh, Canada Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kind
1: of impacts is this strike going to have on your industry?
3: Well, I, uh, a strike is going to have a tremendous impact on the supply chain in general. But um, even before a strike happens, now there have been negotiations going on for weeks before the actual strike was called. And during that mm-hmm. time, uh, shippers... Uh, are looking for alternatives so they don't get caught when the strike actually happens. So you start seeing disruptions in the supply chain weeks before where, uh, uh, you know, shippers and importers are diverting their traffic to make sure that it gets where it's supposed to go. Uh, Obviously, their first choice is the most efficient and cheapest method, and when they have to divert from that, it becomes less efficient and more expensive. Then when the strike actually happens, and as we have it, you know, on the B.C. coast, when uh, the gates are locked, nothing moves. And you mentioned, you know, the preamble, like what happens to freight? Well, it's like, a, it's like a conveyor belt. If you put a door at the end of the conveyor belt, everything just starts getting piled up, piled up behind it. So uh, rail, transa- uh, rail freight coming into the port uh, can't. There's no room to put the boxes or to put the goods. So it gets backed up into their yards. Um, Shippers who have, uh, you know, bring their goods to those yards, there's no room in the yards because they're full of containers, it has to stay in the factory, in some cases, factories have to shut down because they cannot move their goods out and there's no room for them. So it has a ripple effect throughout the supply chain and uh, this costs everybody money, time, effort, and ultimately that's going to get passed on to the consumer.
1: Right, that's a big concern for so many listening right now. Eight mil, eight hundred million dollars a day going through right. our BC ports is not an insignificant number. And we were listening on mornings with Simi, listening to um just how our corner of the world is where many choose to ship through because we have such direct lines. What? When you're looking at what's happening here and making another plan, as you mentioned, the, the least expect, expensive next option, um, what does that look like for people trying to move goods to and from Canada?
3: Well, just a little uh, set this up. Uh, they were negotiating in the United States for their West Coast ports also just recently, and they came to a deal. And so now you have a situation where Canada is closed to business and the U.S. is open. And if you are shipping to North America from, say, Asia, and your choice is you can't go to Vancouver, you might go to Tacoma or Seattle. And you may be able to hook up with a rail line going east to satisfy your customers. If this continues uh, longer and longer, there may be a, a you know, congestion on those alternatives. And if they can handle it, some shippers may decide that that's a better route because it's more reliable. I mean, the Mm day-to-day impact is not good for, one, the workers, the employer, the port, Canadians in general, all the other members of the supply chain. But what really hurts is Canada's reputation as a reliable place to do business. And during COVID, there were numerous shutdowns of the supply chain, whether it was natural, which, you know, we have little to no effect over those, flooding in B.C. um, and wildfires. But there were also blockades at uh, ports, uh, well, not ports, but also at the uh, border points. Border. And there were well. also strikes. And mm-hmm. these things accumulate, accumulate. And, and if I was in a, a, a different country and I looked at the Canadian supply chain and it's sort of breaking down every so often with regularity, or I could go somewhere else where it's smooth and I have reliance on it and my goods are going to get where they're going, which choice will I make? So Canada's reputation is going to take a beating over this.
1: I only have 30 seconds left, John. Do you think that the federal government should step in here?
3: Well, uh, I just was on a call this morning. The two sides are no longer negotiating because they've come to an impasse. Um, If the government, they have really two levers. They can use moral suasion to persuade the parties to get back to the table and cut a deal, or they can legislate them back. And the longer this goes, uh, you know, for instance, what if this goes for three weeks? then they'll have no choice but to legislate it back. I think they should do it right now and get it over with, get people back to work.
1: All right, John Corey, President of the Freight Management Association of Canada. Thank you very much for giving us your perspective this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jody.
4: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line. It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
1: Wrong. Diet coke. so funny Elton John saw him in concert at BC Play Stadium years and years and years ago and he was sitting at his baby grand piano and he had a diet coke can up on the piano the entire time and clearly product placement I don't want to single out necessarily diet Coke there are lots of uh, places where aspartame has been a huge part of the the sweetener. Um, But Diet Coke is the one, I remember the first one you tasted and you thought, oh, that does kind of taste like Coke, you know, back in the day. And, And many people just replaced all sodas stocked in sugar with a diet alternative that had aspartame in it. Now there's some concern. The World Health Organization moving towards Uh, classifying aspartame as a carcinogen. I can't tell you how many people are already emailing me on this. Jody at cknw.com. That's Jody with a Y, jody at cknw.com. I mentioned off the top of the show that we'd be discussing this with Professor Timothy Caulfield, who is a professor and research director of Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's a TV host, he's my friend. And I always look to you, Professor Caulfield, to give us some perspective on some of these big headlines Misinformation, disinformation fact, always science up first with you. Thanks for taking some time for us today.
4: Thanks for having me on, Jody and it's a it's a great topic and I have to confess right off the top, I'm a recovering, a recovering diet Coke addict. So mm-hmm. <laughs> this one this one I can relate to.
1: You're talking to one because when I was a teenager, I did that too. I'm like, I'm never drinking regular coke again. Why would I do that? And I would drink diet Coke and it almost became like my coffee. To some, because it is caffeinated and you would just, it just got easiest I mean, it's one calorie by Cor- uh, Corey LaTondra, our, our producer here. He's like, it's Coke zero for me. Same thing. Uh, are we going to see some significant health impacts to the chronic aspartame drinking? Is our Diet Coke going to kill us? Well,
4: well, first of all, you know, I think we have to really analyze what this headline, and this headline is everywhere right now, right? Mm-hmm. What it really means. So, there is an entity within the world Health Organization called the that's uh, the agency for research on on cancer and they categorize cancer um risk and and it really is just an analysis of the available data so they have you know class one risk and these are these are things that likely cause can you know for sure cause cancer like plutonium or something like that right. And then you have a 2A categorization, which is, you know, probably causes cancer. And Then you have a 2B categorization, which is possibly causes cancer. And that's where they're putting aspartame. And I think it's really important to recognize that, the data is messy, and that's why it's in 2B. So it's not like this is a slam dunk. And if you go and you look in the literature, it's, it's really, it's pretty messy. It's pretty messy, a lot of animal studies, some you know, uh, observational studies, that kind of stuff. So they're saying it's a poss- it possibly could cause cancer. And if you think of the other things that are in that category, aloe vera is in that category, um, uh, pickled veggies are in that, in that category. Uh, really? Yeah, so that's it's important to recognize what's in that category. And the other thing I think is really important to recognize is dose issue. Whenever you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, a carcinogen, you have to think how much do you need to consume or be exposed to to really have a significant risk, a kind of risk we need to worry about. Um, and not all carcinogens are necessarily dangerous in small amounts, if that makes sense. So something can be a carcinogen, but the way that humans are exposed to it, it isn't really that dangerous. So we have dose, messy data, and even, even if the, the risk calculation is correct, it's probably a low risk. Now, keep in mind we're looking at this through the lens of someone who is a former
3: <laughs> so maybe there's a confirmation
4: <laughs> bias there. But yes, I, you know, yes. I think it's I think it's fair to say that the risk is probably low if it does exist and but we still should be researching this stuff.
1: I'm going to share a little stat that I found here that aspartame is safe to consume within accepted daily limits, which speaks to what you were just referencing there. Like, what is the example? What how much of it do you need to consume in order for there to be a risk, and and in this one example cited in the in the Global BC um, news story on this, is an adult weighing sixty kilograms or one hundred and thirty two pounds would have to drink between twelve and thirty six cans of diet soda, depending on the amount of drink uh, aspartame in the beverage. But twelve to thirty six cans of diet soda every day to be at risk. So that that does give you. Um, some perspective in terms of that you know and and you go back to the class one two or three or is it a b and c um you know the obvious one like plutonium or cigarette smoke or other things you like this is cancer causing Uh, aspartame is not in that category when you said aloe vera i just about fell out of my chair aloe vera is in the same class as, as aspartame now
4: that's right, and there, and there are other things. The hot water, I think it's you know hot, hot beverages. I think are is a two A, so it's above, it's above wow. uh, okay. as, aspartame. And, and in in the number one category, you have things like meat, right? So again, that goes to the exposure issue, the dose issue. It's not saying if you have you know one hamburger, you're going to get cancer. Um, so, you know, this is messy, and I know it's really frustrating for people when you know they hear, see these headlines and then they hear how you know the, you know messy the data actually is. Uh, so I think this is one of those situations where you know, we should take a you know step back, follow the literature, and you know that that cliche about moderation is is probably your your best guide.
1: I got a couple of emails from people. Linda sent me one that said my scientist daughter advised me not to use aspartame in the 1970s. Soon after, I was able to like water. <laughs> people people are, are, are with us on this. And, and Mary sent me a note that said, so, so good to have you on. My five cents worth aspartame is that its ills are not new, the effects now being brought up. Um, and, and she goes on to reference how um, the, uh, that there were some seizures associated with aspartame. Do, do we know anything about that in any of these studies?
4: Well, you know, I I think both of those comments go to the the reality that this has been controversial for a while, right? For a while. And and most of the studies, if you look at them, you know, they're observational studies and and epidemiologists who I really respect have have noticed this. The reality is it's pretty comforting, right? You know, the the, the data on on the health effects of aspartame. You know, I, I don't think there's any sort of you know, alarm bell kind of research uh, out there, research results out there on whether you're talking about uh, cancer or other other ailments. But it's you know, given how much we consume this, you know, the research I think remains yeah. important. And the other interesting thing, Jody, is most people drink this because they're trying to avoid calories. And the data on on weight loss and and you know ma- weight maintenance is also interesting and probably messier than a lot of people. People realize, and there's also really interesting research. Some of this is speculation, building on on uh, other research that about you know how its impact on our sweet preferences. You know, now I said I was a former <laughs> uh, yeah diet coke addict. I've segued away from drinking any kind of sweetened beverages at all. I, you know, I drink I drink water. Coffee, 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 and then there's the alcoholic beverages, which I try to drink in extreme moderation. But that's it for fluids for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you know, uh, there's some evidence that, that that makes sense.
1: At your peak, Professor Timothy Caulfield, at your peak, how many Diet Cokes would you drink a day?
4: Oh, I was bad. <laughs> you know, I, I was.
1: I want to know. I'm and and we, were going low brow. <laughs> we were going lowbrow.
4: We oh, were going lowbrow Diet Coke. Oh. We're talking, you know, the the big gulp. The, and I went oh. for the super big gulp, which my beautiful wife used to call the super big pail. So, and, and then our, our car would have the, the carpet of big gulp uh, <laughs> things in the back. Yeah, it was, it was ugly. Jody, it was ugly. That's
1: <laughs> Hey, thanks for coming clean on the, uh, the Diet Coke addiction. That is next level. I was more a can girl. But I would I, on some days I could have gotten six cans of Diet Coke in me. It was kind of like my constant little buddy that I had with me at all times. But oh, I, I like the up. cans
4: more. You know that first hit yeah. of a of a on a yeah. hot day of a cold Diet Coke. Oh man, oh, I'm my... I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. <laughs>
1: Oh, that takes you back, doesn't it? Oh, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Hey, bringing everybody together, having a bit of kumbaya, whatever it takes to bring people together, let's do it because the divisiveness is unbelievable. We are with Professor Timothy Caulfield. He is the Professor and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. He is about science up first. He is literally writing books about making sure that you fact-check what you – what you know to be true or what you've checked to be true a speaker and tv host always able to give us the scientific perspective in a way that's very consumable for us and frankly professor respectfully you want to bring people together but but also will call out the misinformation and disinformation where it stands so where i want to go with you next here in this segment is to talk about how it is that rational educated like truly smart, well-meaning people seem to be so susceptible to online lies. What is happening?
4: Well, it, it's true, and, and I think it goes to something you said in that intro. There, you know, we want to try to bring people together, and unfortunately, our our you know social media, but really, our entire information ecosystem is so polarized now. And that facilitates this phenomenon where even very, you know, rational, informed people can be misinformed. So the study that just came out, you know, one of the great things, Jody, is there's so much research happening in this space right now, and, and, which is great. And this study is a good example of that. It just came out. It, it found that even rational people can be misinformed because of the structure of the information networks that they, you know, they, they live in. So what do I mean by that? You know, people live in echo chambers and within those echo chambers, um, your misperception can be confirmed and it can be more difficult for you to come to the correct conclusion, regardless of the evidence that you're exposed to. And they found exactly that, right? That in this nosy inf- no- noisy information environment, it's easy to continue to be misinformed, so our cognitive biases come into play. If there's someone that you disagree with and they're providing you with accurate information, you're going to discount it, right? Uh, if mm-hmm. there is a lie that you that confirms your beliefs cir- circulating within your information network, you're going to believe it and perhaps not fact-check it. Now, the good news, Joey, <laughs> the good news is these researchers found that eventually eventually uh the the truth starts to rise to bubble to the surface and and become the agreed upon fact but all the things i just talked about even for rational people make makes that process incredibly inefficient and and unfortunately you know we live in echo chambers now and so there's a lot of inefficiency out there
1: yeah rage is driving the algorithms that we are all buying into social media wise, right? Whether it's Twitter or any meta platform, Facebook, Instagram, all of that, TikTok, all of it, um, where there used to be so many go-to places for the majority of society to get fact-based news. That has been watered down in a way, like you say, that silo, that echo, echo chamber. There are truly people who, even when they seek out um, fact-checking will be delivered um, falsities or disinformation and misinformation. How is it that we break those cycles? Or is, is it futile to try and even do that, given what we're up against?
3: Well, two, two really
4: interesting, very recent studies highlight what you're talking about. So this, a study that just came out, I'm going to say last week, last week found that the good news, the good news, fact-checking does work. Um, So what they did is they they was a, a large group of individuals and they they ran a study where they found that if, you know, you fact check something, people do change their opinion. But the bad news going to the echo chamber problem is if the fact check, if the fact check countered their previous belief they became more negative towards the media, thus sort of facilitating mm. polarization. You know what I mean? So, okay, okay, what I deal. agree with I get the fact check, I get the fact check, but, you know, let's pick on CNN. Or, you know, CNN, I've never liked you, and, and this just confirms I like you less now because you're telling me something I don't want to know. And that's, we all do this. We all do this, right? Here's another really yeah. extreme study, Jody, that's amazing. It's one of my favorite recent ones, but it's very depressing. They found, it was a study where they looked at both the general public and physicians to explore their their perceptions on COVID therapies. So think ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and they found that for both the public and for physicians, the strongest predictor of their perceptions on COVID therapies was what cable news show they watched. So that means in wow. the United States, you could go to a doctor and their perception on what COVID therapy to use is more strongly influenced by their favorite, you know, whether they watch CNN or Fox News, than the science. How depressing is that?
1: Very, very depressing. And when you see people who have made their entire careers on misinformation, disinformation and anti-science looking to, to seeking out the highest office in the United States. I mean, that is concerning to say the least.
4: It, re- it really is and I think what all but you know all of this research suggests despite how angry it makes me and frustrated it makes me we need to be empathetic. We need to remember that all of us can be susceptible to misinformation. We all have our biases and we need to try try to check them when we're looking at the data.
1: It's very difficult to do but you make it easier especially on your Twitter feed because it does I see you standing up for science and and with the facts attached to it. And that is so key in the learning piece of this puzzle. Honestly, Professor Caulfield, I appreciate you. You know that I do. Thank you for making so much time for us today.
4: Thanks for having me on, Jody. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, and you know the old sayings like going down and grabbing a grabbing a pint. Go hang out and socialize. It's wine o'clock somewhere. It's gin o'clock. Enter in your favorite um, cocktail, perhaps. Over COVID, drinking spiked. Let's be honest. We went home. We stayed home, and we might have indulged a bit. And then people decided, you know what? Time to ease up on the cocktails. And certainly some moderation comes into play. Some people decided, you know, dry January isn't enough. I'm going to be dry more often and make it uh, a treat to socialize with a cocktail or cut it out completely. There are people who have become sober curious. Have you heard that term? Sober curious? It's really taken hold. A, A generation actually is truly embracing a completely alcohol free brand of socializing these mocktails are huge bars that have no booze whatsoever but serve up cocktails mocktails that look like and taste like the alcohol beverage the tiki drink what have you and yet have no booze whatsoever there's an entire generation saying no to hangovers check out some of these stats okay these are some u.s stats total sales of non-alcoholic drinks in the United States grew by 20.6% between August of 2021 and August of 2022. And Pinterest, you know, Pinterest, that cool spot where you go and look for trends and stuff. Pinterest saw searches for fancy non-alcoholic drinks grow by 220% year over year. 220%. On FAIR, this one website saw a 250% year-over-year increase in searches for non-alcoholic and alcohol-free over the course of a one-year period. It's really quite something interesting to note the first time I ever heard Sober Curious was our next guest. She brought it up as, as just a thing that she was trying out. She didn't want to talk to people about not drinking or drinking or what have you. She like, you know what? It's not serving me. Holistic nutritionist from nourished.ca. You hear her with Shane Hewitt all the time. Alyssa Bowman is with us. Hey, Alyssa. Hey, Joey. Thanks for having me on. I do credit you with bringing up the term sober curious in in my world because that was the first I'd heard of it because you literally just winked at me and said I just I at my birthday party you said I'm leaving mm-hmm. at one thirty in the morning and I have not had a single sip of alcohol and I had a blast. Tell me about Dance your the brand. Night away. You did. Dance sober curious. Nobody away. would have known drank out of no. a champagne glass.
0: Oh, that's the trick. That if anyone is starting to you know, embark on this journey because it is quite a journey because drinking is just so incredibly normalized and it's the thing to do. And if you don't do it, then you must have really, you must really have a problem. And that's the trick. get a nice glass, whether it's a champagne glass or a martini glass or a wine glass and fill it with whatever that is. I like sparkling water with some kind of lime. And then you feel like you're drinking. It started for me because I was noticing um, that I just wasn't having a great time anymore drinking. It was giving me headaches, changing the way my sleep was. I was waking up in the middle of the night. And then, I'm sure you've heard this term, I was having anxiety. I would wake up, and I'm not an overly anxious person at all. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I and all the demons were just, they were, they were coming at me. And I'm like, wow, this doesn't normally happen to me when I'm not drinking. So one day I just replaced the 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 cocktail with a mocktail and to be honest I haven't really looked back you know I'm not going to say I'm never going to drink or I'm 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 just I'm I'm sober I don't use that word I just I'll choose a little bit more intentionally when I do have a glass of wine or have a cocktail It's, it's just about becoming much more mindful of what you put in your body and how it makes you feel
1: so when you first took those steps, did, what were the most notable immediate changes of becoming Sober Curious? Because as you said, you didn't make a statement to everybody, didn't change your social circle or the way you thought about yourself. This wasn't you going, okay, I have a problem with booze. It's that booze doesn't serve me anymore, so I'm going to do this. What was your first payoff in in Sober Curious lifestyle?
0: My first payoff was honestly the sleep. It was the sound sleep I was getting. And listen, I wasn't drinking a lot, but I would have my drinks on a Friday night, and I'd drink on a Saturday night, not to excess. Some nights I would have more than I should, and I would feel it even more the next day. And I said, you know what? This isn't serving me anymore because I don't feel good. And as a holistic nutritionist, I'm very in tune to what makes me feel good. I mean, that's my whole MO. It's like I, I help people feel good by choosing what to put in their body. And it wasn't working for me, so I'm like, okay. Let me just try to cut it out or slow down or whatever you want to use. And and that's what I started to do. I just started to notice when and where I was drinking. And I would replace that with soda water with lime or soda water with lemon. Or as you were saying before, there are so many, so many non-alcoholic cocktails and mocktails out there that nobody even needs to know. And that's probably what was the hardest thing was the becoming more mindful, but yet not making a big deal about it and and telling everybody in the world that I'm not drinking. I would just do it quiet and nobody knew. And to me that really helped because when I told people that I was not going to drink tonight, they're like, oh why? What's wrong? Like there had to be a problem. There there's nothing wrong. I'm just becoming more intentional about, you know, what I'm putting in my body. And now that I've been doing this for about two and a half, three years, people just know that I don't really drink that much. And if I do, it's definitely on occasion and it's accepted. And that's the hardest hurdle to get over is when you're out socially is to try to do it quietly. Don't make a big deal about it and or find people that will support you and even join you on this journey. I have a very good friend of mine who saw the benefits that I was feeling and I was noticing that she was drinking. and like, try it. And she tried it. She got a couple of friends on board and it has been life changing for her. Most significantly, the sleep, the anxiety,
1: and actually changes in your skin. Yeah. It's interesting too, Alyssa, because as you're speaking to the, you know, keep it quiet and, and not really announcing it, what have you, for generations, if you, if one were to sit at a social environment and turn down the cocktail, you know, what are we all having? It was either I'm on antibiotics or I'm pregnant. Like it it was literally like you were, you were being outed if you didn't order a cocktail. And yet here we are where non-alcoholic content is trending on social media. Dry January had 86 million views on TikTok. That's not surprising. Lots of people take a month off, but sober curious, that hashtag on TikTok, 300 million and hashtag mocktail, 670 million. This makes me so happy I get this because I think the younger generation now
0: is much more attuned to what makes them feel good. They are yeah. able to recognize it. So it's now becoming more socially accepted. I mean, and especially when you can go out to fancy restaurants and bars and get really delicious mocktails. And you can even make them at home. And it's really if you just it's really if you think about it, it's just the habit. It's a habit of putting, opening something special up, maybe hearing that pop of a cork, putting something in a shaker, muddling it with some mint, and really shaking it up and pouring it into a nice glass. It really doesn't matter what's inside because you know what? Nobody really benefits from drinking. Once the buzz, you know, takes over and you just continue to drink, you just people become salty, and nobody wants that anymore. And I think the younger generation really see that. Perhaps they picked it up, you know, watching the older generation being like, yeah, I don't think I want to be like that. I don't want to wake up that way. I don't want to look that way. I don't want to be that stumbling, you know, fool. And I think it's amazing. I really honestly think it is amazing. And we're all becoming a bit more mindful, which really means that we're not using something to numb out what we're feeling. And we're all being able to be more comfortable with what we're feeling. And that's kind of what it's all about
1: it really is and and i love the fact that zero proof spirit brands are growing and influencers are like katy perry has uh started a company of of non alcoholic sparkling aperitifs so all the flavor cuz some people just really enjoy uh having that, that little flavor bite. That, that bite right that bite on the tongue yeah. right that bite on the tongue yeah so so find there, a way to do that. And and certainly not telling people that they can't responsibly drink, you know, know your limit, play within it, whatever the proper hashtag is. If you drink, don't drive. Obviously, these are the things. And if you want to, that's totally fine. But the benefits of being sober curious are are some of the things that I wanted to chat with you about today. And as you've said, just to recap, the sleep. The, the, the lowered anxiety people who are feeling extra anxious don't realize how that anxiety spikes not when you're drinking but when yes, you're not right yeah yeah you know you, you may
0: be just just before we go here there's something that's really important to help listeners change their their shift their perspective on it it's not that I can't drink it's about choosing to not to so when you shift right. that perspective in your head I am, having freedom over my choices. And it's about choosing right. not to because it doesn't serve me as opposed to, oh no, I can't drink, right? That's a, that's a different mentality. That means we're like, there's a lack somewhere. We're, we're, we're not allowing ourselves. No, no, no. I'm allowing myself to choose and I'm allowing to choose the freedom I feel from living alcohol-free. And it, it, it's just a simple little shift in your mindset. And I do the same thing with, you know, teaching clients how to eat. It's just a tweak in how you think about it And it changes your perspective 100%. If suddenly you have freedom, you have more freedom to control what you want to do and what you don't want to do.
1: Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, hanging out with my good friend, Alyssa Bowman, holistic nutritionist at nourished.ca. You can find some great recipes and information, how to... Be your best self, and and do it in a way that's not fussy, uh, not preachy. This is about looking and feeling your best. I love when you say it's like you know when you when you eat well, you can look in the mirror and see it in your face, right? Less like it's a it's a big piece yeah. of this. A lot of people at the end of a a vacation sort of long wi- weekend, okay, let's go and do this, and we're eating all the things, and we're drinking all the things, and we're maybe not getting the rest. And and then we're looking at ourselves in the mirror going, I'm not my best self right now. How do I get back oh on track? Man, what Help, us, yeah, what right? Help us, yeah, right? Help us get back, back on, on track. track? Yeah.
0: yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, moderation is always key. And if you go into the long weekends, I know today's July 4th, and it's moderation, that's always key. Um, but if you have overindulged, and it does happen, don't beat yourself up about it. Just get yourself back to where you want to be by by doing the things that make you feel good. So that's different for everybody. But what I do know that works for everyone is sweating it out, getting a little bit of exercise, whether that's walking, doing yoga, going for a run, whatever it may be, just getting some movement in. And again, going back to what my philosophy is, it doesn't have to be full on. Just get some type of movement in, especially now the weather's nice, get outside, go for a walk, go for a swim, just move your body and get your systems moving so they can get back to, you know, equilibrium, get back to a little bit of normalcy. As I say, movement heals. So anytime, you know, the last thing you probably want to do if you're feeling hungover is move your body because you just can't get off the couch. It's the best thing that you can do down some water, maybe with some salt to replenish the electrolytes and just take a walk. It just helps with your body. It helps to clear your head because you probably have those demons coming up, especially if you drank too much. And it just helps with your overall well-being. So move your body every day is, is my number one.
1: Yeah. can you Can you just dig into that a little bit? Because it is normal for people to have that blue feeling right? Almost like a depressive oh. associated with being hung over, right?
0: Well, alcohol is a depressant. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, you may not feel it in the moment because you're living on that buzz. And, you know, science shows that after a couple sips of whatever it may be, you get this big dopamine hit. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter in your brain that releases the serotonin that makes you feel good. So we're constantly yeah. chasing that, that hit, right? But guess what happens? After like those first two sips, that's it. There's no more dopamine hits anymore. And now it's, you're chasing that by drinking more, by drinking more, by drinking more. You're chasing that buzz. And what happens is it doesn't really come anymore. So at the end of it, you know, when you, when you finish or however, you know, the night may end, you wake up the next morning and you will just most with the time people feel so low because we are completely depleted of our serotonin levels because we were trying to chase that, that neurotransmitter release. So it's a real thing. I mean, alcohol is a depressant. It may not feel so in the beginning because, you know, especially during summertime and the backyard barbecues and the nonstop long weekends, you know, you're always celebrating something, but the next day is surely not a celebration. I mean, I have spoken to numerous people that says it makes you feel even worse, enhances the problems that you already have and just makes everything that much worse. So sleep it off, drink some water with salt and some lemon or some kind of you know uh, electrolyte replenisher and exercise, move your body and you should start to feel a little bit better. That whole thing, the hair of the dog, that is the worst thing that we could do is to start putting alcohol back in the body when we're hungover. It may, again, make you feel better right away. But it's only going to, you know, delay that actual overall body feel better when, you know, it's time to get back to it.
1: Alyssa, you're always a breath of fresh air. I'm sure there are lots of people today going, okay, 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 I'll go drink water. I'll go for a walk. Go drink water. <laughs> I'll no lift way. myself <laughs> off the couch. That's right. Make the move. Do the thing, and it will give you the energy to do the thing. Nourished.ca is where you can find free tips and tricks on how you can uh, eat and live the nourished life. Alyssa Bowman, thank you as always.
0: Thank you, Jody. You know what? I'm going to put something out. You've inspired me. I'm going to put my summer socializing on Instagram tomorrow to help anyone who wants to try to cut their, cut their alcohol a little bit to help them with my favorite tips.